Welcome back to the Vine Church podcast. Today we are continuing our sermon series, Building Back Better, exploring the book of Haggai. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and would love to have you join us over there. So uh, today is the 30th of August. On the 29th of August, God spoke to someone. Someone we've potentially all heard of, someone very trustworthy. I certainly place a lot of weight on this person's words. And God told them to prophesy to everyone that now is the time to begin the restoration, but to build back even better than it was before. And that God was with us to ensure this would happen. Did you hear about this? Does that sound exciting to hear? Perhaps I should say that it's not the 29th of August 2020, but it was indeed 2,500 years ago in the year 520 BC. And this man was the prophet Haggai. So Haggai chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. So that's the 29th of August, 520 BC. Now over the next few weeks, we're going to be unpacking the book of Haggai. You might never have read it. It might seem like an odd choice uh, to be preaching through. But it's funny, me and Andy both felt independently, really, that God had put this on our hearts to to teach it. It, We felt it really needs to be taught now. As I say, you may never have read Haggai. It's a tiny book right at the back of the Old Testament. If you're struggling to find it, if you start at Matthew, you go back to Malachi, then Zechariah, then Haggai. Um, As I say, it's the second smallest book in the Old Testament but don't let that fool you into thinking it's insignificant. You know, it was actually, it was my dad's favorite book of the Bible. And he used to say that when he gets to heaven, Haggai was one of the people he'd love to have a chat with. Now, Haggai is significant. He was the third to last prophet before God stopped sending prophets for 400 years and then Jesus came. So this is right at the end. As I say, don't let the size of this book fool you. If you have your Bibles open, you might see that it's only one page to see the whole thing. It's tiny. But there is lots packed in to these 48 verses. And part of the reason that this book is so powerful and profound is because of where it fits in the historical um, narrative, where it fits in God's plan with his people. And and when we get into that, when we look at that, we find that um, how well this book applies to us where we are at the moment. So I think that as we go through this book, you'll really find yourself identifying with it and identifying with the message. And that's why we've called this series Building Back Better. And so today what I'm going to be doing is something that, if you're familiar with the concept of delayed gratification, then uh, I think you'll enjoy this morning. I think this sermon is exactly that. There was an experiment done in 1972 where they put a, a marshmallow in front of a child and they said... If you don't eat the marshmallow, I'll, come, I'll go out the room, don't eat it. When you come back in, I'll give you a second. And so the child was left with a marshmallow. And some of them would wait, and the parents came back in, they got two. Some of them would uh, eat the marshmallow. Now, what's really interesting is, 
When they looked, when they, uh, looked at the kids who took part in that experiment 40 years later, so that was 1972, so we're talking now uh, 2012, uh, the ones who had had a really good concept of delayed gratification, who waited for the second marshmallow, were doing much better in life. They had done better in school, they had a, general, a, a better general lifestyle, and they could, reported to be more content people. So this concept of delayed gratification has really uh, been given a huge uh, praise because of that study. And so today, I'll be honest, this isn't going to be one of those sermons that in 20 years' time you'll be saying, man, that sermon changed my life. But I do hope that what I'll be giving today is going to give the anticipation so that as we get into this book, you can really uh, see where the people of Israel are so that you can see how they were pregnant with anticipation. And so by the time we're really digging into Haggai, it will enrich our lives as we work our way through it. And I hope that you'll see that we are in a very similar context to Haggai and his peers. This really is a book for us. So today I'm going to be giving a marshmallow and over the next few weeks we can really be enjoying two more. That said, I don't want this to be a history lesson. That's really not my aim. I want us to be blessed as we see the story that God is weaving together that shows how God is dealing and intends to deal with his people, both them and us. So we're going to be looking at why we have the book of Haggai. Why is it relevant to us? Now, as I said at the beginning, like us, Haggai and the Israelites were going through a period where life was not normal. They were learning that phrase, which I've heard probably a billion times by now, the new normal. They too were learning to live life very, different from, very differently from what was familiar. So the, the big question to ask then is, is why was life upside down for them? We know why it's upside down for us. You know, we've had a global pandemic, which caused a 30% recession, a spike in depression and anxiety. The gathered church has to be closed, and there's a general sense of uncertainty uh, with what life looks like in the next few years. So to give our context, we really only have to go back to February. But we have to go a little bit further than that for Haggai. And the question I had to ask myself when I was writing this was, how far back do I go? You know, I, I could go all the way back to Adam, I could go to Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Jacob's 12 sons. I'm not going to. I'm going to start at the Exodus. I'm not going to go through everything, don't worry. This isn't going to be meticulous. But what we have in the Exodus is God's people, Israel, in captivity, in exile, longing for God to bring them out and take them to the land that was promised to them so they can be God's kingdom of priests, so they can establish God's kingdom on earth from which he will draw all nations to himself to be blessed by him. And so God saves them from Egypt, he brings them out of captivity, and they make their way to the promised land. But of course, the hope of establishing God's kingdom starts to splutter as they wander the wilderness. They become idolatrous, they become unfaithful, they doubt God's promises. And so they get stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. But eventually they get to the promised land and they start to establish the nation there. But it doesn't seem like it's all that was originally intended. The fullness of God's promises don't seem like they're quite here yet. It, it's good, it's, better, it's definitely better than Egypt, but it's not quite there. 
Then as we read into Judges, we find that it's nothing like the original intention. Forget about blessing the other nations. Israel itself is a mess. There's people sinning and cursing against each other. There must be more than this. This can't be God's intention. So that's our first stop. They're drawn out of exile into the promised land, but it doesn't seem to quite go that way. So let's go to stop two in this whistle-stop tour. What we need, says Israel, is a, is a righteous king to lead God's people, one who loves God and keeps his commandments and teaches the nation to do the same. And so eventually we end up with King David, the righteous king par excellence, the one who unites the nation, the one who defeats the Philistines and those who hate God. He makes the kingdom of Israel bloom with prosperity and beauty. God even makes a covenant with him. He promises David that from David will come a son, the perfect righteous king who will completely fulfill all that God said his kingdom would be and all creation would be blessed by it. Could this be it? But then David falls He commits adultery. He kills that woman's husband. It all starts to unravel. And then his son Solomon comes along, and he seems full of promise, super wise, but then he starts to unravel. And before you know it, the whole kingdom is is unraveling. The kingdom splits in two. You have the Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and all the kings of both of these kingdoms seem to be wicked. They neglect God's law. This can't be God's intention, This looks nothing like what was planned. Forget what we saw earlier. Every time it seems to start to go somewhere, it then falls back again. Eventually, all this wickedness we see, having grown and grown and grown, results first in the northern kingdom, Israel, being destroyed by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. And then about 150 years later, Judah is now attacked by the Babylonian Empire and its inhabitants are taken away off into exile, to live in Babylon, to have their identity as God's people stripped away from them. This seems like God's plan has failed. His people are no more. Forget the kingdom that would bless all the other nations and draw all the other nations in. There isn't a kingdom to do that. Folks, it looks like this is the show over for God's people. But wait, what's this? Even in exile in Babylon, when all hope is lost, God is now raising up prophets to speak about restoration, to bring his people back, and now finally to do what he promised years and years ago. Isaiah comes along and is referring to this return from exile, this new exodus, and making, God making a new creation as he restores his people to far more than what they've ever experienced before. And now he's prophesying that even the Gentiles will pour in too, the nations are coming in to be blessed. Ezekiel is prophesying that God will build this amazing temple with proportions and descriptions that sound hyperbolic and amazing and quite unimaginable. But when is all this going to happen? Jeremiah prophesies that this exile in Babylon is going to be 70 years and then they'll return. That's when they'll return to this glorious promised land. Let me just uh, read from Jeremiah 29 where he says this. There's one verse in this passage that we're probably very familiar with, but unfortunately it's so rarely read in context that we miss the preciousness of the promise. 
So this is Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14, where it says this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from the place from which I sent you into exile. God promises to bring them back. You know, when he says, I know the plans I have for you, he's not just saying, don't worry, it's all going to be okay. He's saying, everything that happened in the past was in order to get you to something better than what you've had, Israel. Again, if you read Daniel 9, Daniel is a prophet in exile. And uh, Daniel is reading Jeremiah, and he finds this hope, and it stirs him. So in Daniel Daniel 9, verses 2, he says this, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet Jeremiah, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel said he's reading what Jeremiah spoke, and so he knows that the exile is almost over. And so he turns in fervent prayer, in anticipation, longing to go back and asking that his people wouldn't make the same mistakes that they did before the exile. See, that it's starting to grow, this anticipation to go back. They're in exile, but God's going to bring them out, do something even better. And when you read the book of Nehemiah, you find they get back. They start the rebuilding process. The temple is being rebuilt. This looks like it could be it. Could this be everything coming true, all the promises from God? Could the kingdom be restored now? Could the nations be pouring in? Is this exile over? Maybe not. In Nehemiah 9, after they have returned to the land and restored the city and begun to restore the temple, we read in Nehemiah 9 verse 36, But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruits and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Yeah, we're, we're back in the land, says Nehemiah, but it feels like the exile still isn't over. We still need a new exodus, just like the first one. We need to be taken out from our exile. We need a true expression of liberty that God has promised. It's like, as you read through the Bible, there's this motor. And it begins to tick over, but then it just keeps spluttering. We keep making progress, and then it splutters. We know that something more is still coming, but this isn't it. We still wait with anticipation. It's soon We know that. It's coming. We don't know when it's going to come or what it's going to look like, but we wait intently for it. And this is the background of Haggai. 
In Haggai, they've been back in the land for between 16 and 18 years now. And because of all this, all this background that we've just gone through, life is thrown upside down. It means there's this unique air of pessimism mixed in with a pregnant anticipation. You know the phrase, you could cut the tension with a knife. That's exactly what's going on here. There's this tension between this intense pessimism, it's pulling one way, and it's saying, this is not how we expected life to go. This is not ideal. It's all upside down, and I'm anxious about our future. It's pulling one way. There's this, as I say, an intense, real pessimism. And they're not being faithless. They're being realistic. It doesn't look like the way that they expected it to go. And yet, equally, there's this other pull, which is for a profound, as I say, pregnant anticipation. Here we are, we're back in the land. God has made us promises that he will restore us. I can't wait to see what God is going to do. I'm eager to get on with what God is going to do with us. So when you open up Haggai, that's the air that everyone is breathing. This tension that's pulling them, an intense sense of defeat coupled with an intense sense of anticipation for the future. Perhaps that's something you can identify with at the moment. The same sense of two opposite feelings of tension as we consider our future. I really hope that as we get into Haggai together, we we find some real encouragement and some real challenges given to us. This book has become strangely relevant to us in a unique way 2,500 years later. We're reading a book about the slow return of life being upside down to life coming back. But it isn't a straight return. It's not returning to the way things were. It's a return that will far outweigh the the glory of how things were. They were building back better. So as we get into this book, that's our encouragement and our challenge. When Haggai opens his mouth and says to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord of hosts. This people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The question on everyone's mind is, could this be it? So the question that should be on all of our minds, could this be it? But more of that as we get into this book over the next few weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our faith, Lord, that this belief that we have in the message of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, Lord, that it isn't a set of propositional truths. It isn't just a set of things that we can believe about life, Lord. It's a story that we've been brought into. And Lord, we thank you for the thousands of years that you have been dealing with your people, bringing them into the fullness of your promises. And so, Lord, I pray that as we read through this book over the next few weeks, that we would see ourselves in this story, see where we sit, and, Lord, that we would be challenged and encouraged by what's gone on in the past. Lord, I pray that we would identify with this, that you would challenge us with it. In Jesus' name we pray, bring this book alive to us. Amen.
I'm going to hand back to Andy now.